actually, I'm glad that Charlie did that. I didn't want to let this go. But the opportunity to introduce the guest speaker tonight is for me a great pleasure. Uh, it's a gentleman with whom I've had the privilege of corresponding for several years. And I've enjoyed meeting him today for the first time face to face. I'm not going to say too much now uh, for a reason that you'll find out later, but just for his background, he is the past editor of Civil War Times Illustrated, which I'm sure most of us read, and if not all of us, we should. He is now retired. He kicked himself upstairs. He's the general manager now. He's also the head of the National Historical Society, which issues the American History Illustrated, and they've now acquired another magazine which they are printing about life in early America. He's been a friend to us far more than can be described. I think we're all going to enjoy meeting and hearing from Mr. Robert Fowler. Thank you very much, uh, Marshall. Um, it's a real pleasure to be here. I know uh, a good many of you already from having met you some years ago in Gettysburg and of course through correspondence. And then uh, since you've, uh, these quizzes that we've been running, uh, since they've been run past you and tested here, I feel that you're, you're like members of our staff here. So uh, it's, it's like a staff meeting here. And it's a great pleasure for me to be here. And I'd like to uh, compliment um, Don Russell, the, the editor of your newsletter. You're the only editor of any publication in these great United States who recognized the significance of our article on General Schimmelfinning and gave it its <laughs> proper place. <laughs> and the New York Times, Life Magazine, all of those passed it by, and you, you discovered the significance. I compliment you. <laughs> I was. Uh, Last summer, I went over to, to uh, England on a visit, and I dropped by the, the, uh, uh, an English magazine. I won't tell you which one it was. And the editor of this magazine condescended to see me. Um, I had the distinct feeling of condescension. I felt like a colonial uh, who was being uh, allowed this privilege. He was a guy who looks uh, a bit like the late George Saunders. Super silly, you know, and looking down his nose. And uh, I tried to have a pleasant conversation with him and wasn't getting very far. And then he said, uh, well, tell me now, Mr. Mr. Fowler, uh, you published this magazine on American history. He says, uh, 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 how, how can you go on year after year publishing something about American history? After all, it's such a short history. There's so little of it. I, I should think that after a few years, you would uh, quite run out of material. And I, I'm, I'm still not sure whether he's putting me on or not. But um, I told him that uh, we had another magazine called Civil War Times Illustrated that uh, merely covered four or five years of American history, and there was no insight in, in, end in sight there. But um, 10 years ago, or 12 years ago, when I started Civil War Times, and 10 years ago when we became Civil War Times Illustrated, uh, actually, uh, I would almost have agreed with him in, in a way, uh, because I thought that everything worth knowing about the Civil War uh, was surely pretty much in print by then. There might be a few things that hadn't been discovered. But the big story had been told, surely. And there would be merely a matter of retelling the story, getting the very best 
<coughs> authors that you could uh, get without paying them anything, <laughs> and uh, serving it up in an attractive format, and uh, carrying on this, the story for perhaps 10 or 20 years. And uh, I was just plain ignorant. You remember the old um, radio show, It Pays to Be Ignorant? And sometimes it does pay to be ignorant, or at least naive. I think that uh, one of the biggest advantages I've, I have is, uh, is that I've been deprived. I've been deprived of uh, training as a PhD. I don't have a PhD in history, thank God. Uh, no offense meant to anyone here. There's some people here with PhDs who are my friends, and I'll settle with them later. But they do uh, tend to have a cut-and-dried approach to history that uh, doesn't go well with the layman. Uh, we've uh, taken a journalistic approach to history from the beginning uh, simply because I was a, a journalist. I had no choice. I simply had to do the best we could with what, uh, with what I had. We've always had a gee whiz attitude toward the Civil War. Uh, we have a spirit of discovery. When something comes across our desk, we, we like to get excited about it. So um, this gee whiz attitude has been helpful. Uh, over the years. Now you notice I use the word we over and over again and uh, you probably think it's, uh, it's an editorial we. You know there are only three persons who can use we in speaking of themselves. Uh, one is an editor, another is a member of royalty, and the third is a man with a tapeworm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I say we, I'm really speaking of a team, a group of people, because our magazine is not uh, a one-man show by any means. Looking back over 10 years, uh, there's the late Colonel Nye, whom you've all met, a very grand old man who was our managing editor for many years. Uh, Dee Brown, one of our best authors, I think, is spoken here. Fred Ray, our art director in Harrisburg. Uh, he started working when this was a spare time project uh, for free. For several years, he never got any compensation for it. Um, my friend Al Castle came in a few minutes ago, one of our authors. Uh, Marshall Crowett, for that matter, with the quiz, and of course all of you here, Bill Riley and many others. Uh, we really provided a, a forum, so please don't think that I'm trying to be egotistical and uh, give you a big sales talk about Civil War Times illustrating what a great editorial group we are in Harrisburg and Gettysburg. It really is a team effort. And this we also includes a 25-year-old um, Californian who joined our staff three years ago, uh, fresh from getting his master's degree at a little hit college out in California. He's uh, Jack Davis. He started writing for us when he was a college sophomore. Wrote a piece on Breckenridge. Uh, some of the members of the Breckenridge family saw it and liked it so well that they signed him up to do a biography, the official family biography of, of Breckenridge. He's just finished, uh, last fall, finished the work. It's going to be published uh, sometime in the next year. Um, but he has uh, been a marvelous help in taking Colonel Nye's place, and he inherited the Breckenridge papers. This family is spread out all across the United States, and they have been sending literally trunkloads of letters, diaries, financial records, uh, letters to and from Breckeridge over a 30 or 40 year period. And this young man has it and it's been a gold mine. We've turned up many, many new discoveries 
or got many, many leads out of this material that he, that he got as a result of going back to, to his article in the Civil War Times. And now, of course, I've been turned out to pasture. Uh, at the end of 10 years of Civil War Times Illustrated, I turned it over to this young man and told him he had a, a carte blanche to run the magazine from then on. His first act was to take my name off the masthead. <laughs> and I have been reduced to going around and, and speaking like this for free suppers. <laughs> but of course you didn't come out uh, on a cold winter's night in June to, uh, to hear about a, a lot of inside information about a, a, a uh, publication That's right. to get on with my subject. <laughs> uh, what are the new discoveries about the Civil War? Going back over a 10-year period. Well, they fall into several categories. First, there's the big new revelations, the ones that uh, have historical newsworthiness. And then there are new slants on old subjects. Then there are new discoveries and illustrations. And then there are hitherto unpublished first-person accounts by little people of the war, not earth-shaking in themselves, but awfully interesting to lay historians, Civil War buffs, or just plain nuts like most of us are. And then there are the things that we have not yet published that uh, will be coming out over the next year or so. I think probably one of the most startling things that we've discovered in, in the past uh, few years is the full details, or almost full details, of the Saltville Massacre. The murder of over 100 Negro soldiers, the Battle of Saltville, the mountains of uh, western Virginia. Some little bits of this have been known previously due mainly to mention of it in Mosgrove's Kentucky Cavaliers and Dixie. However, the whole story goes a lot deeper and eventually the research revealed that there were over 100, perhaps more, members of the 5th U.S. Colored Cavalry who were murdered on October 3rd, 1864 by Confederate Tennesseans and Texans. Uh, our article covered all this and it ended up by pointing a finger at General Felix Robertson as being the man who was responsible for this in some way. And he was arrived at by a process of elimination. A letter of Lee to Breckenridge in the official records makes it clear that he was one of eight generals present, that one of eight there was guilty, but it doesn't say who. It states that the culprit was expected to be leaving the department, and since only two of the eight left within the next few months, it had to be one of them. And one of these two left under arrest for a different offense. So this leaves Robertson. And this conclusion was confirmed after our article was published when Robertson, Robertson's compiled service record in the National Archives revealed an order from Department Commander John Eccles directing that Robertson be ordered to report to southwestern Virginia to face an informal conduct of inquiry into charges preferred against him by Breckenridge for his conduct on October 3rd, 1864, the date of the massacre and not of the battle. The order was dated February 22nd, 1865, just two weeks. Actor Breckenridge took over as Secretary of War and significantly on the very day that the Senate rejected Robertson's nomination for confirmation as Brigadier General. Now, we uh, printed this in an article you may remember some months ago in Civil War Times Illustrated. But after this, we, we began to get the feedback from our readers. And we've received a, a letter from one man in Texas who says that many years ago he purchased a pistol from an old a uh, Texas veteran, and the old man told him that with this pistol, a revolver, he'd kill 19 Negroes 
at Saltville in 1864. We're going to get on to the National Archives someday soon, I hope, to look into the individual service records of the members of the 5th U.S. Colored Cavalry to see uh, if we can pinpoint the exact number who lost their lives there. So just one, uh, one of the kinds of, uh, of uh, disclosures that we've come up with. Another is, uh, again, growing out of the Breckenridge Papers, is the story of what happened to the Confederate Secret Service funds in Canada after the war. Jacob Thompson was a commissioner there, you remember? And uh, he left soon after Appomattox, took off to Paris uh, with somewhere between $100,000 and $600,000. No one knows for sure. Um, in Breckenridge's unpublished diary of the period, Jack Davis found a brief reference to his possibly having kept this money. The real find came when he was going through some long unknown and unexplored a trunk that every historian hopes to find someday. This one belongs to a descendant of Breckenridge's. Jack was the first person to go through it since the 1920s at least. And it's full of Breckenridge's correspondence and among the letters are two that we reproduced. And together with other bearing on this question of what happened to the money, uh, together with this and other information, Jack uh, amassed uh, evidence that indicates surely he took a, a considerable amount of money out of Canada with him. Research on Thompson is still going on. Since publishing this article, we found that other Confederates besides Breckenridge suspected Thomas Thompson. One of them, Henry S. Foote, was governor of Mississippi during the war. Uh, he's found, uh, Jack has found testimony from Can Canadian ba bankers that indicates that before leaving the country, he actually withdrew $600,000 from them. Uh, we've located the granddaughter of the man who last had possession of Thompson's letters, ledgers, and journals in the war, and we hope there will be a lot more of interest there uh, when we locate <coughs> them and uh, have a chance to go over them carefully. So, um, another discovery. Then there's the William Mahone memoir of the march to Appomattox. This came to us in a very curious fashion. Uh, a couple of years ago, uh, a collector in Virginia said he had a 73-page letter, apparently written by William Mahone. Um, we asked him to send it up and let us look at it. He wrote, uh, he did, and almost every eye in the office popped when we looked it over. 73 pages of his own handwriting telling of what he did and saw in the last seven days of the war on the retreat from Petersburg to Appomattox. It quickly became evident that instead of being strictly a memoir, it was in fact a letter written to someone in reply to some questions. It was written in the early 1890s. It was not dated, but the stationery was stamped at the top 189 blank. Uh, Mahone died in 1895. And checking over some of his statements against the published recollections of other prominent Confederates, we noticed quite a similar similarity between it and um, General James Longstreet's from Manassas to Appomattox. The comparison made it certain that while Longstreet changed some of Mahone's wording, he was copying directly from this very letter, and therefore this must actually have been uh, a letter from Mahone to Longstreet. So. Uh, it becomes quite significant because there's a great lack of material in this, this, uh, these closing days of the war. Uh, many items of special note are, are revealed in, the, in this letter. The breakup and disorganization of Lee's army is everywhere evident. One of Lee's long-respected staff officers, Colonel Charles Marshall, 
Marshall, according to Mahone, was drunk and interfered with Mahone's division, which was the only uh, really cohesive unit left, the only division. The uh, dejection and the loss of hope among some of Lee's general officers is revealed, and unflattering comments are made about uh, some such as Richard Anderson and about John B. Gordon, whom he blamed for, for the failure to, uh, to destroy the high bridge. Um, then they had some humorous <coughs> incidents as well. They, they lost, apparently felt the loss or failure to destroy the high bridge very keenly, but much more keenly apparently he felt the loss of his milk cow and chickens he had along the way. The uh, Federals captured his cow and he needed it for a sour stomach, which he apparently had all the time. So I'm not sure which he took more seriously, the bridge or the cow. Then, uh, going back a little further, one of my favorites is uh, the story of the Andrews Railroad raid. I don't know, did any of you ever meet uh, Wilbur G. Kurtz down in Atlanta? Yes. Yeah, grand, grand old gentleman. Um, he, uh, in fact, in case you don't remember the story, he was an Indiana boy, <laughs> went to art school, and became fascinated by the uh, Andrews Railroad raid. And he got to know some of the raiders very well, interviewed them, took notes, and then carried on his research by going down to Atlanta and uh, interviewing some of the Confederates who chased the general, which was the locomotive that was kidnapped. And uh, while there, he got to know uh, Captain Fuller, the man who led the chase, and his daughter, and ended up marrying the, the daughter and staying in Atlanta. And he went around and talked to people who lived along the railroad tracks there, and being an artist, he would sketch the building that figured in, in the story. And uh, if the building had been destroyed, he would talk to some of the old people and do a sketch, and they would correct it. And right on the spot, he would show you exactly how the, how the building looked. And he preserved all these and preserved his notes. And uh, with my help, uh, he and I wrote it together. It appeared uh, several years ago. It got a tremendous response. It corrected a number of misapprehensions, misconceptions about uh, Andrews Railroad Raid. And then, uh, being a former newspaper man, uh, I've always felt badly that uh, Robert E. Lee thought so poorly of newspaper men. You know, uh, he, he didn't like to have them around and would never give them interviews. Well, uh, we discovered, uh, or rather it was discovered in, in the Washington and Lee College Library, some memoranda that were kept by Colonel William Preston Johnston, who was a professor at Washington College after the war, and became very close to General Lee. He used to have lunch with him. And I suppose it was not quite uh, correct, but after these conversations, he would go back and, and make uh, notes on his conversation. And they were found in the Washington Lee uh, Library. And uh, it was like a newspaper man's dream to find these, because it was almost like conducting an interview with Lee without having the possible embarrassment of being rebuffed by, by him. Uh, in, this, uh, in this memoranda, Lee is quoted as saying that he had felt very early in the war that the Confederate government should have used Negroes as soldiers and given them their emancipation as a reward. That he felt that cotton should, not, should have been shipped out very early in the war and stored in European warehouses to be used as collateral for loans instead of being withheld until the blockade, of course, made it impossible. Uh, he said how he felt that Ewell and Longstreet had let him down in the wilderness, 
He should have been a clear-cut victory there, and they'd cost him the victory. That he had foreseen Grant's change of base after Cole Harbor, but that he had lost his uh, capacity to prevent it. So um, this is something that, uh, that we printed and uh, received an excellent uh, reception from our leaders. And then there's the another story on Appomattox. It's not a, absolutely a mystery, but uh, a, a study of the effect of Sheridan's spies on the Appomattox campaign. This was done by Dr. James Bakeless, who was something of authority being a former uh, OSS man himself. He's written a book on spies in the Revolution and in the Confederacy, and I think he's working on one now in the Union. And he tells about how Sheridan's uh, scouts uh, in Confederate uniform were really lousing up Lee as he tried to get away from after Petersburg, trying to make his way to join uh, uh, Johnston in North Carolina, and how uh, this is really why he didn't get his supplies at Amelia Courthouse, that, that uh, Sheridan's scouts had interfered and had, uh, has, had routed them off in a different direction. And of course, that probably speeds up the end of the war. Well, these are just a, a few of the revelations, and it's not all uh, hot new stuff that we that we get. Our, we don't pretend to publish a magazine that that continually comes up with something new. We tell the old stories over again, and we try to find new slants on old subjects. Uh, Pete Long's story of the Battle of Plum Run. It was the largest gunboat battle of the war, and in, in point of number of, uh, of vessels involved. The Confederates had more strength there than they had anywhere else right before the fall of Memphis. And uh, we've all been glossing over it all these years, and Pete came along and zeroed in on it and did a very fine article for us. And if you ever had Byron Stenson here to speak, he's a professor of uh, psychiatry, I think, at the Ohio State. Anyway, he's a, uh, a Civil War student going way back, an amateur historian. And he has a way of, of going back and look at the at diaries and records and looking at them with a, a modern view, coming up with some amazing findings. Uh, one, you know they call it uh, shell shock in World War I. And um, World War II was called battle fatigue. Well, he went through and looked at some of the records in the Civil War and found out that the nervous heart and many euphemisms like this were nothing other than battle fatigue. Did a very fine piece for us, and then we all know how um, how few engagements there were in the Civil War after dark, uh, and we usually attributed it to oh, lack of communication and confusion and this sort of thing. But Byron uh, put his finger on something else that uh, a great many of the soldiers in the Civil War, especially on the southern side, uh, simply had night blindness because of poor diets, and they just could not see at night and uh, did a, uh, an excellent piece on us. And then Grady McQuinney, who is, uh, of course, an old friend of yours and, and mine, too, uh, he came out with a reappraisal of Braxton Bragg for us in which he uh, showed that there were some people besides Jefferson Davis and his mother who actually liked Braxton Bragg. <laughs> <laughs> now, you know, that is quite impossible to find some kind words about Braxton Bragg. But it, it, those of you who read the article know that uh, he showed that some of the soldiers liked him, that he was a, 
they appreciated the fact that he had them well trained and that he did not waste their lives in battle. And another piece that has pleased me a great deal is uh, uh, one by a man named Vernon Crow. I think he's out in California. And he discovered that the only Indians involved in the war were not the, the uh, civilized nations of the Indian Territory, Oklahoma, but that uh, the remnants of the Cherokees who were left in the mountains of North Carolina participated in uh, Thomas's Legion with some of the mountain folk around there, and that they were originally uh, organized to be home front soldiers, but they served quite some time in Tennessee and up in, uh, in Virginia. And on one occasion, they reverted to their old ways and uh, did a little uh, extracurricular scalping on the battlefield. <laughs> then in the field of illustrations, um, we heard some time ago that someone had a portrait of a young lady painted by Earl Van Dorn. And of course, we assumed that there would be something lascivious about it. It would be at least a nude or, or, or someone in a, in a shift. Um, but when it came in, it turned out that no, it was just a watercolor of a very demure-looking young lady who probably was his niece, but we still printed it. We thought it had value and ought to be published. And he wasn't a, he wasn't a bad artist, no matter what you think of him as a general. Another uh, piece of debunking we did, we did not really mean to debunk, but it came out that way. Those of you who looked over Miller's photographic history know that there's a scene there of a man at Antietam looking through field glasses from a hill, supposedly at a battle in progress. And it's supposed to be the only photograph of a Civil War battle actually going on. <coughs> and indeed, uh, it does look like a battle, because off in the distance where he seems to be looking, there's a line of horses and, and vehicles. Or look, they look like uh, artillery. And uh, there's a pile of smoke. Well, we got to someone in the Park Service there to take a photographer around. And he searched and searched until he got the landmarks just right, took his bearings, and he sat down just in the spot that man was taking down. We took the same picture. And uh, a little map work uh, indicated that uh, no way could he have been looking, could that have been a battle in progress, that he was actually looking at some artillery reserve uh, down in the distance there, and that smoke from the battle was drifting back over there. So it was almost a, a photograph of, of the Battle of Antietam in progress. Then more recently, uh, Manny Keene, who's uh, another one of our old friends uh, who's helped out from the beginning, has an archive down in uh, Philadelphia. Uh, he found a, a drawing done by Edwin Forbes for Harper's Illustrated Magazine, a newspaper. It was to appear in their April 15, 1865 edition. It shows uh, Lincoln with uh, Ward Hill Lamont, his buddy, sitting in Grover's Theater enjoying the movie, commenting on, I mean, not the movie, excuse me, <laughs> <laughs> the uh, play, a play, and comments on how he likes to go to the theater. Well, of course, uh, he was shot on April, no, 14th. It was a little later than, it was scheduled a little later than that. Anyway, they had time to pull this back. They heard the news of the assassination and pulled this out and never published it. And later, in two or three weeks, they came along with the awful shooting, showing John Wilkes Booth uh, shooting at Ford's Theater. And uh, we published this uh, for the first time. We even scooped uh, Harper's Illustrated on it. And then there's the shocking disclosure about Civil War pinups. Uh, <laughs> God forgive us. Again, Dyer, uh, Byron Stinson uncovered this, uh, this filth about our 
honorable ancestors, forerunners, that these uh, innocent men actually enjoyed having pictures of naked women in their huts and tents. And uh, he did an article about it, and we printed it. And we lost a few subscriptions about it, believe it or not. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not as many as we would have 10 years ago before Playboy edition. <laughs> and we printed the, most of the pictures. There was one picture that was just a little too far for a family magazine. Uh, and uh, it was, we think it might have been uh, a little later anyway than the Civil War. We're now working on uh, on getting a uh, an unpublished, unknown, or at least unpublished photograph of Lee, made in 1869. You may remember that Lee went to Washington, I think, to testify in the Ku Klux Klan inquiries. And while he was there, uh, Brady snapped a picture showing Lee breaking in health, a, a pitiful picture. And uh, we think that this was another pose from that same sitting. It, it has just never been uh, published before. That will appear soon. Then the, the thing that we keep our eyes out carefully for are first-person accounts or eyewitness accounts. And here you get away from the historian and the person who participated tells his story in his own words. Now, it's unbelievable that there are as many diaries and letters around this great country on the Civil War. Uh, we're being offered them every week. We get one or two at least. And we ask them at least to send us a typescript. Please not to send the original until we have seen what uh, publishing value it has. And most often they're pretty useless. They're dull. Uh, once we, we heard that uh, we were going to get a diary from a man who had stood guard outside Lee's tent. We thought, wow, this is it. Send it along. And he said, yes, he had stood guard outside of Lee's tent, and then he complained about how he felt and the weather and all this sort of thing. He said nothing. <laughs> so this is the way uh, letters and diaries written at the time generally go. Uh, they're about mundane things. Memoirs are often better. Uh, you have to watch out for self-serving in them and, uh, and inclusion of things that they could not have known about. But they're often... Uh, better for publishing than, than diaries and letters. Uh, we've had a, an excellent diary left by Paymaster's clerk Ellsworth H. Hulse, a, a diary, uh, written aboard the gunboat Galena, detailing its eight-month cruise from Philadelphia to its position with a blockading squadron off Mobile Bay. Includes pictures of Caribbean ports where federal ships were provisioned and coal, provided uh, intimate details of gunboat life, and then the highlight of it a detailed, on-the-spot account of the Battle of Mobile Bay written the night of the fight. We published it for the first time. It's in private hands. And incidentally, we are cooperating now with the Army uh, collection that's been established at Carlisle, Pennsylvania, and we're trying to persuade people to send their material to, uh, to the former, it's the War College, a uh, branch of that, so it'll be preserved. Then another Navy letter we've had set of letters from Lieutenant Commander Charles C. Carpenter, who was aboard the uh, USS Catskill. A series of very important letters by the Monitor's second-in-command, the executive officer, written to his wife during the operations against the forts in Charleston Harbor in 1863. Provides some very vivid pictures of Monitor life, the battle, and so forth. And then uh, there's another incident we discovered in the University of Tennessee no, I'm sorry, the 
the State Archives in Nashville, uh, that they had a collection of letters written by a New York colonel, Colonel William Teal, who had been <coughs> on General Sumner's staff during the Battle of Fredericksburg. And uh, he had gone up in a balloon and had seen the battle from a balloon. Well, now, talk about a dream. Wouldn't that be marvelous to, to view a, a Civil War battle from uh, one of those balloons, provided you were a safe distance away? And uh, he said, yes, he had gone up, and he had looked out over it, and that the sight had been too, too grand to describe, and so he didn't bother. <laughs> I could have killed him. But he did have some good touches about uh, uh, the, the uh, turn of events as seen from General Sumner's uh, headquarters. Another one of my favorites is Dr. Simon Baruch's recollections of his services as a Confederate surgeon. Uh, he tells about uh, being at Gettysburg. Very well done. This is the father of uh, Bernard Baruch. Uh, we've had, uh, I don't know why people who were hospitalized or in prison felt compelled to write about their experiences, but over and over again you get this. Uh, sad, sad stories of being wounded, and even sadder stories of prison life. And uh, perhaps it's because uh, the ordinary soldiers uh, thought that uh, there was nothing spectacular about what he had done. He hadn't been wounded or, or taken prisoner, so why should he write about it? I'm only guessing, I don't know. But we've, we've Pretty well done those to death, and uh, we've kind of clamped down on using any more. Well, the ten years are up, and we're looking ahead to, to the future. And we have some interesting things which are, are going to appear sometime in the next year or so. Uh, Brigadier General Henry Little's Diary, Al. Uh, March to May 1861, April September 62. And never before published or consulted personal diary by Sterling Price's chief lieutenant. No other general's diary in existence provides so thorough a picture of the anguish suffered by a U.S. regular officer in determining to resign and join the Confederacy. He could not make up his mind. He was in Missouri, whether to go north or go south. He gets some very interesting personal sidelights on his fellow commanders in Confederate medicine because he was constantly ill. And uh, the last of his diary entries was made on the morning or early afternoon of the day he was killed at Iuka. A chaplain completed the day's entry with an account of the general's death. Very touching thing. This is in the hands of a private subscriber. Now, this is the one you edited. Yeah. Al Castle uh, took this off of our hands and gave it a careful reading and put in the editorial notes, and, and it's being put in type now. Then the uh, letters and diary of H. Taylor Minor, Jr. He was a Confederate midshipman, served aboard the ironclad Savannah on the Georgia coast, led one of the four raiding parties which boarded and captured the federal gunboat Waterwitch, which led to a Union court-martial with the ship's commander and a court of injury on the boat's loss. He later served in the little-known Confederate torpedo service. These items are not yet acquired, but uh, we have uh, got them on their way to the uh, War Library at Carlisle, and they're going to do the, the job of typing them out for us, and then we'll keep them. And then here's another real goodie. Uh, the letters of the original George Patton, not the one who was made famous by George S. Scott, <laughs> but uh, his grandfather, who was killed at the Battle of Piedmont in, in uh, 1864. Letters to and from his wife. Uh, 
They're in the possession of George E. Patton, as his people in World War II called him, in his possession of his daughter, and uh, she's invited us to come and look at them and see what, what uh, is there. Another one uh, that's coming up is a diary of a federal soldier who witnessed the execution of Sam Davis, the Tennessee boy who would not uh, give the source of his information, and uh, who later ate supper with the executioner who was filled with remorse and said he hated to do it and what a brave man he was. The unpublished diary of the Confederate Secretary of the Navy, Stephen Mowry, which he kept during his imprisonment after the war. Pete Long is coming through again with a, another one of these articles going back and pulling things together and discovering something new for us. This is the almost battle of Manassas Gap, which occurred after Gettysburg before Bristow Station and the Mine Run Campaign when Meade made a move toward trying to cut off Lee as he moved back down toward the old lines around the Rapidan. So I've uh, only told you the stories of our successes. Uh, we've had some failures. Uh, one of them was uh, we, we had a lead uh, a few years ago on, uh, on the location we thought of uh, Pickett's original report on the Battle of Gettysburg. You remember after Pickett's charge failed? Well, after the battle, he filed a report, which was so bitter that Lee asked him to take it back and redraft it, and he did. And uh, we had uh, heard a rumor that uh, the wife of uh, Pickett's grandson, I think it was, in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, possibly had this uh, report in uh, the family papers. And Glenn Tucker, who lives in North Carolina now, made a trip by Winston-Salem to help look for it, and we turned up nothing. So our hopes were dashed. And then we ended up almost having egg all over our faces. Uh, we picked up uh, an article from the Old Century magazine about life aboard the Alabama. And uh, we had it in type. And pictures were all selected and laid out. And it was uh, another, it made life aboard the Alabama seem pretty seamy with poor discipline. And I think a true story probably. And one of our authors uh, noticed that we were, had what's coming, telling what was coming in a future issue, and referred to this. And he said, of course, you realize that, that uh, this was probably spurious, that uh, this man was not aboard the Alabama. It was a phony name that he had only talked to the men who were. And we ready for press. We managed to stop it and stick a little editorial note saying, uh, of course you realize, general readers, that this is not a real story that uh, he merely interviewed the people and we kept the egg off our faces that way. <laughs> now, not all of our, our discoveries are, are earth-shaking. And it takes uh, sometimes a very sophisticated and subtle mind to recognize the importance of things like uh, the true location of General Schimmelfinning's headquarters there in, uh, <laughs> in Gettysburg. And perhaps in time, Don, we can demonstrate that this in some way affected the, uh, the outcome of the battle even. And when you, when you come to Gettysburg, as you will uh, next year, uh, I know the, the location of the, of the pigsty or woodshed or whatever it was. And um, if you like, I, I will find out the very foot of ground it stood on. And it's not far from the big motel there. And I, I will escort you over there personally, and we'll find this place. <laughs> um, I've only talked about uh, discoveries going back 10 years from the time we started calling our magazine Civil War Times Illustrated. Um, and I suppose you wonder, as I do, whether the discoveries will ever end. Of course, they are not infinite in number. 
It would have to end sometime. But certainly not in the next 10 years. Not in the next 10 or the other 10. I think that each generation probably is always going to be taking fresh looks at the, at the information, coming up with uh, new answers to old questions and even uh, new questions. Uh, the interest in the Civil War goes on and on. The, for instance, the national visits to the National Military Parks. Uh, 1960, there were 27 parks and there were 10,700,000 people who went there. In 1971, 11 years later, there were 30 parks and visitations were up over 26 million. In our case, uh, back during the centennial, at the end of the centennial, we had something like 17,000 subscribers for Civil War Times Illustrated, and now there are over 30,000, and it's growing gradually. Uh, young people, I think, uh, are discovering the Civil War for themselves, and it's a very encouraging note. Carol and I and I had a favorite story that uh, we, we discovered it together, heard it together, and we always closed our speeches with it, and I hope that not too many of you people remember it here, but it's a story of a fellow from Arkansas who had a, a grandfather who was uh, in the Battle of Gettysburg, and uh, this, this fellow loved to hear his grandpa talk about Gettysburg, and one day the, the old man was getting at an age where he decided he should start being honest and truthful. <laughs> And he said, Johnny, you know, uh, I really was at Gettysburg. He said it was a horrible three days, and I fit hard there. He said, but you know, it's been uh, 50 years now. He said, and I have told so many damn lies about that battle that now I can't rightly remember what really did happen. <laughs> so that I'll close.